You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Fortunately for all of us, there is a great deal of research being done on one of the world's most lethal infectious diseases, malaria. In this segment, we will discuss promising new research on both prevention and treatment of this modern-day scourge. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Christopher Plough, an internationally recognized expert on malaria. He is Professor-in-Chief, Malaria Section of the Center for Vaccine Development for the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He is also a Doris Duke Distinguished Clinical Scientist of the Medical School. Dr. Plough has received NIH grants for the study of malarial resistance and vaccine development. Welcome, Dr. Plough. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. I do want to talk about uh, research, but uh, first things first. So where does funding for malarial research come from? Well, traditionally it's come from, in this country, from the government, from the National Institutes of Health, and to some extent from the Centers for Disease Control, and then the Department of Defense has had uh, a long program uh, for developing malaria drugs and vaccines mainly because malaria has been a huge problem uh, anytime our forces have been involved in operations in the tropics. But lately, uh, we've got to really uh, give credit to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has just it's really gotten behind malaria in a big way and really focusing on things like drugs and vaccines and other interventions that are, are going to make a real difference uh, now in saving lives. Can you give our audience any statistics as to perhaps how much of a contribution the Gates Foundation has made? Well, they started something called the Malaria Vaccine uh, Initiative uh, with a grant of $50 million several years ago, and they recently announced a grant, that, which I think was bigger than that. So and, and one of my uh, uh, friends and colleagues recently got a grant from that uh, entity for $29 million. So they, they've really, in a very short period of time, become uh, one of the major funders of malaria research. I think one of the other things they've done, beyond just giving money, is also focusing attention on the problem as well. That's absolutely right. And, uh, and you know, I have to tell you, I, I am thrilled to see people like Angelina Jolie and, and, you know, Oprah Winfrey and, you know, Madonna, who's shown up in Malawi, where I work visiting orphanages, just, you know, drawing attention to the situation in Africa in, in a general way. I mean, it doesn't directly support the research I do, but it raises the consciousness of the American people that this is a real problem that's killing kids and pregnant women around the world and something worth having their tax dollars go for. I see. Well, now let's talk about something that you're doing and very heavily involved in, and that's vaccine development. Uh, tell us about uh, your efforts in Mali. Well, what I've done is worked with a group at, at the university in Mali to develop a site for testing malaria vaccines. One problem that was foreseen was that there were lots of different potential vaccines coming down the pipeline and really very few sites in the developing world that were set up and ready to test them. So we've spent almost 10 years doing that and, and building up to the stage of being able to test malaria vaccines and start doing clinical trials of new candidate vaccines back in 2003. And started out with very small phase one safety and immunogenicity trials and worked our way to the point where we're now about to start our first uh, phase two trial, which is a trial of efficacy. In other words, we're going to see if one of these vaccines actually protects kids against malaria. So we're very excited about that. Tell our audience about what you did over the last decade in terms of even preparing a run of trials. What infrastructure was necessary? What kind of personnel did you have to train? 
uh, what specifically was involved? Well, the, the, the key thing that's made this possible is partnership with African scientists, and there were some really terrific uh, scientists in Africa who are, are my partners on this. And what we did is we identified a place that we, we thought was suitable for clinical trials. It has to be a place with a lot of malaria. And we went up there, and because we were working with local scientists who knew the language and knew the culture, they were able to discern that very little malaria was actually being treated at the hospital in the town where we started working. But they went and identified traditional medical healers and found out that in a three-month period when only seven children had been treated for severe malaria at the local hospital, over 200 had been treated for what sounded for all the world like severe malaria by five traditional healers who specialized in severe malaria. Now, they didn't call it severe malaria. They called it wabu, which meant that a it was a spiritual illness that was caused by a bird flying over a child and crying out at the same time the child cries out and stealing its spirit. But when the team talked to them, they were willing to refer those children to us at the hospital, and suddenly we started seeing a whole lot more malaria. And so a critical aspect has been building up the relationship with the community and the people living there over this period of time so that now we're at the stage where we can count on their cooperating in the trials. But it's also meant working in a place with initially no electricity and setting up generators and freezers and, and building a research clinic and, uh, and clinical labs. And, and uh, ultimately, uh, recently, we've now established a good Internet connection there so we can upload our clinical trial data at the end of every day. The traditional healers, wouldn't they uh, lose their standing stature or money or compensation in some way if they refer their cases out? Now I'm thinking as a private practitioner, of course. Well, and it's a good question, and 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 uh, it's why it's critical to work in close partnership with the local uh, doctors and local scientists, because what they were able to do was actually get the traditional healers to review their records and and discern that they had a 50% case fatality rate for what was severe malaria, and and that they would do well to refer those cases to their colleagues at the hospital to get a good outcome. And we made sure that, that they were part of that process, that they got the credit for that referral, and that the child was then referred back to them afterwards. And, uh, you know, we, we did things like help to help support a garden to grow various herbal remedies. So they may be a little bit of, uh, you know, money directly out of pocket and fees are not making, but overall it's, it's good for their credibility and their reputations and their practice in the long run. I see. So a bit of cultural sensitivity. Indeed. Now, I also know that you're doing some work on identifying drug resistance as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your research efforts in this area? Yeah, I think the, uh, the most interesting thing we've done there is we went to Malawi. I, I went to Malawi about 10 years ago initially because I was looking for ways to validate molecular markers for drug-resistant malaria. In other words, mutations in, in genes in the parasite that cause the parasite to become resistant to drugs. And I was looking in Mali initially and not finding enough resistance, and, and it turned out that Malawi was sort of a hotbed of resistance in Africa. And in fact, Malawi was the first country to switch from chloroquine, the old standby uh, malaria drug, to a newer drug, sulfadoxine, pyrimethamine, back in 1993. And the rest of the countries around there kept on using chloroquine, even though it wasn't working well. So we had a, a molecular marker for resistance. We actually went back and found old blood smears and scraped off the dried blood and collected the, the material 
and did our molecular assays and found out this molecular marker for resistance declined from 85% when the chloroquine was still being used down to ultimately to 0% about 10 years later. And we predicted that, well, if the molecular marker for resistance is gone, maybe the drug will work again. And sure enough, we did a clinical trial that we just published last year and found that chloroquine went from having a cure rate of 50% or less 10 or 15 years ago to now having a cure rate of 99%. So we're pretty excited about that. Not that we're ready to bring chloroquine back right away, but it's a a very interesting example that I think we can learn from in how to design drugs that uh, are not so prone to resistance. Are there molecular markers for the newer drugs that malaria is developing resistance to? Uh, The newer drugs that we're using in combinations now that are basically being rolled out around the world to replace chloroquine and other older drugs we don't yet have a good handle on how the parasite becomes resistant to those, and then we're still trying to work out the molecular mechanisms, which is what lets us actually design the molecular assays for resistance. That's something that we're very keen to, uh, to work on. In fact, I'm going to meet with uh, somebody from the Gates Foundation uh, as soon as I get off the phone with you to uh, discuss a, a new initiative along those lines. I see. Uh, has the parasite genome entirely been sequenced? It has, and, and that's a very exciting development. It happened in 2002. The sequence of the Plasmodium falciparum genome was published. Most of the scientists who work on genomes think of the genome as a way to look for new targets for new vaccines and new drugs. And, and as you probably know, when you're talking about developing a new vaccine or new drug, we're talking about a 15- or 20-year timeline. So being a guy who works out in the field and treats people with malaria, I'm really keen to try to figure out how we can exploit the genome to try to either protect the efficacy or improve the efficacy of some of the drugs that are already either in use or are very near to being used, and and the same thing with vaccines. So we're we're trying to come up with more downstream applications of, of the genome. How many vaccines are in the pipeline now? Well, there are about 46 different candidate vaccines in the pipeline at various stages of development. But the the, the real struggle here is that the way I just described it to somebody recently is trying to stop malaria with a vaccine based on a single protein, which is the approach that most people have taken, is probably like trying to stop a charging elephant with a handgun. You might get lucky and, you know, hit him in the eye, and that would be the analogy of, you know, an antibody targeting one protein. But you may need more than that. And so I'm pretty excited about an approach is kind of back to the future. Uh, my, my friend and colleague, Steve Hoffman, is working on an approach where you, you shoot x-rays at infected mosquitoes, which attenuates the sporozoites in their salivary gland. You dissect those out and actually use those as a malaria vaccine, and that's actually been proven to be very effective, and it was just thought to be completely impractical. But the, the approach that Dr. Hoffman and others are, are taking that we're uh, kind of excited about testing in the field before long is to really focus on, on developing that into a viable product that you can put into a vial and, and use as a vaccine. So it's the whole organism instead of just a single protein. Well, I think the issue is that the whole organism can't really be bioengineered. Is that correct? Oh, it can indeed. You can genetically attenuate these things in addition to or instead of uh, just doing it in a very nonspecific way by shooting x-rays at it. And that's a very promising line of research that a group in Seattle is, is working on. So if you genetically inactivate it, uh, you don't necessarily have to kill it and it can reproduce. Well, you don't want it to reproduce. You want to inactivate it to the extent that it'll still get into the liver and stimulate the immune response you need to be protective but you then want it not to reproduce. You don't want it to reproduce in in a bloodstream. Disease, exactly. 
Uh, but it, you're getting away from at least doing individual dissection of mosquitoes, is that? No, no, no. The, the plan, in fact, is to <laughs> dissect individual mosquitoes. And the calculations are that uh, if you have 80 full-time technicians oh my God. dissecting mosquitoes, you can produce enough, in fact, enough uh, sporozoites to, uh, to vaccinate the whole world. Really? Yeah. So, you know, when you compare that to a big manufacturing plant to manufacture a synthetic vaccine, it's actually surprisingly feasible. So 80 technicians working with a microscope dissecting mosquitoes, is that really what we're talking about? That's what we're talking about. Oh, my God. Uh, who would have thunk? Yeah, and, and, and the, you know, the, the people who are leading this effort are people who worked for many years on very high-tech approaches with DNA vaccines and recombinant vaccines and that sort of thing. And it was just really a matter of saying, wait a minute, let's just go back to first principles here and, and see if it was really true that this was an impractical approach, because we know it works. I want to thank Dr. Christopher Plough, an internationally recognized expert on malaria and professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Today we have discussed research developments in both prevention and treatment of malaria. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.